Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3. We're in a series. If you're new here, we're doing this famous little book, Jonah. Most people are familiar with it. Little prophet, four chapters, and we're thinking of it as like a series. We're episode 3 today, Jonah chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there's a blue Bible in front of you, page 775. And as you find that, and before we read, um, when you study the book of Jonah, when you read these scholarly commentaries <clears throat> on the book, one of the very first issues the commentators talk about prior to looking at the verses is they ask and answer the question, is Jonah a true story? Is Jonah a true story, is it, or is it more like a parable, like Jesus would say, of the prodigal son, or an allegory or something. And there are scholars that find themselves on different parts of that spectrum. Personally, I don't see any reason not to consider Jonah a true story. I think Jonah is a true story, but everyone agrees it's a shaped story. It, it is a true story, but it's a shaped story. Uh, the writer uses a true story about Jonah, and then like an artist, he shapes the story. He shapes the story because he, there's certain things he wants to highlight about God, about ourselves, and so he takes this story and shapes it so that we can see things clearly. And he uses certain words, he uses repetition that shapes the story. Let me just give you an example that we'll find here today. In chapters 1 and 2, they parallel almost precisely chapter 3 and 4. So in chapter 1, verse 1, the word comes to Jonah. In chapter 3, verse 1, guess what? The word comes to Jonah. In chapter 1, verse 3, there's the response of Jonah. In chapter 3, verse 3, there's the response of Jonah. In chapter 1, verse 4, there's a warning. In chapter 3, verse 4, there's a warning. And then in chapter 1, verse 5, there's a response to the warning. In chapter 3, verse 5, there's a response to the warning. I think you're picking up what I'm putting down, right? And then in chapter 2, there's God's grace, how God taught grace. And in chapter 4, how God teaches grace. So there's a shaped story. It's the, the, the person is taking a, a true story and shaping it away so we can see ourselves, so we can see the Lord. And one of the things that gets shaped in chapter 3 is that God is communicating he's a God of second chances. God of second chances. It's like God in this chapter, he has a remote control. And he says, hey, let's, let's, let's rewind. Jonah, you didn't do so well in the first chapter or two, so let's, let's rewind. Let's give you a second chance. I'm going to say the exact same things. I'm going to ask you to do the same things, and let's have a different outcome this time. So if I were to break up the sermon in three different parts, I would say there's one reluctant prophet, one brief message, which equals two great turnings. So one plus one equals two, if that helps you. One reluctant prophet, one brief message, and that culminates in two great turnings. Let's stand together as we read Jonah chapter 3. Jonah 3, verse 1, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message I tell you. 
So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city. Going a day's journey, he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. And they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the, the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in, his, is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. You may be seated, and let's take a moment to reflect on God's word. My grandson, Daniel Paul Phillips, turns six next month. Time flies. And at six, you're certainly old enough to help around the house. Right? I mean, not anything big. He's not mowing the lawn or anything. But you know, he gets certain little assignments, certain chores. And one day he was sitting in the living area doing whatever a six-year-old does. Very important, I'm sure. And his mother called out from another room and said, Daniel, would you go to another room and pick something up for me and bring it to me? And Daniel thought for a moment, and that wasn't a part of his plan. He wasn't interested in helping out, so he responded, Oh, ma'am, Mom, don't ask me. Ask yourself. <laughs> don't ask me. Ask yourself. Uh, this phrase has become an instant classic in the Phillips household. I feel pretty certain over the Thanksgiving time when we're all together, there'll be a lot of, don't ask me, go ask yourself. You might say this was the attitude of Jonah in chapter 1. God calls out from another room, hey, I've got an assignment, I've got a mission, I'd like for you to go do something for me. Don't ask me, God. You know, ask yourself, get somebody else to do it. Jonah just didn't have a desire to obey he didn't want to participate in what God wanted to accomplish. And I'm not at, at liberty to say exactly what happened to my precious grandson after that response. Uh, but I do know what happened to Don Jonah. When Jonah disobeyed, he went down. Remember how the Lord or the writer shaped the story? Uh, he, he, he goes the opposite direction, and immediately the writer says, I want you to see that he's going down. He's going down to Joppa. He's going down in the ship. He's going down in the belly of a great fish. And when Jonah went down, we have to remember that not only did Jonah go down, everything around him went down. It's a great phrase, if you don't remember, in chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Jonah paid the fare. What, what a payment. 
I mean, of course, the writer is telling you he just paid $5 or whatever the amount is, but he wants you to know he, he, Jonah paid the full fare of his disobedience. It was a lot greater than money exchanged. But other people paid the fare too. The ship threatened to break up. The sailors nearly lost their lives. All the cargo that they had made money on or were going to make money on got thrown overboard. So it was costly for other people. And we just need to remember that you might be the only one responsible for your sin, but you won't be the only one affected by your sin. And so other people were affected, and we see this parallel again all through the Bible. We can just think of Adam and Eve. When they disobeyed God's word, what happened? They went down. And what did they carry with them down? Everything. All of humanity, all of creation went down with them. So in chapter 2, God gets Jonah's attention by having Jonah spend three days in the belly of a great fish. It says three days and three nights. I, I guess Jonah didn't know the difference. All seemed like night to him. And in chapter 3, we're thankful to see that God gives Jonah a second chance. A second chance. That's, that's a powerful phrase. That's a great phrase The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Aren't you so glad the word of the Lord comes more than one time to you? How many here just responded to the word of the Lord the very first time and you've never gotten off track? I see that hand. No, I don't see any hands. Aren't you so glad it comes? and It doesn't just come once. You're always getting another chance, it seems like, because that's the way God operates. That's one of the themes through the Bible. And God certainly could have abandoned the Ninevites. They were wicked people. He could have certainly abandoned Jonah, who didn't obey. But God longs to give people another chance. Because of God's grace, Adam and Eve get a second chance. God gave King David a second chance. God gave Gomer. Remember Gomer, the prostitute of the prophet Hosea, the wife of the prophet Hosea? She got a second chance. Remember Nebuchadnezzar who spent seven years acting like an animal and eating grass? He got a second chance. All kinds of weird uh, uh, people who are way away from God, who have really done terrible things, they're getting second chances. Peter, the apostle Peter, we know this well. He got a second chance. I mean, he really blew it. And Jesus comes and says, hey, I've got some questions for you. I'd like to give you a second chance. God is a God of second chances. Praise God. Listen to the words of the Apostle Peter as he writes in the New Testament. The Lord is patience with you. I mean, you just want to know that Peter is saying, and I know it personally. This isn't just an idea that I saw somewhere and, oh, you know, Jesus was really patient with that other person. No, he understood it. The Lord is patient. He doesn't want anyone to perish, Peter says, but everyone to come to repentance But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Heavens will disappear with a roar and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. So Peter is telling his his congregation before he dies, hey, God is patient. He, He longs for everyone to repent. He wants to give one chance after another. But there's there's a warning here that we can't miss. There will be a day that comes and it'll seem... It'll seem sudden when it comes to you. 
whether the Lord comes in our lifetime or you go to meet the Lord, it'll be like, I can't, I can't believe it. It seems so sudden. And there'll be a time when there's not another chance. Someone here this morning is Jonah. You're on the inside. Like Jonah, he was a prophet. He spoke for the Lord. You're, you're part of the insider group. You're church going. You know God. You trust in Christ. And you know his word well enough to know his voice. And he's calling after you in some form to, hey, would you join me on this mission? I, I see that you're in another room. Would you come over in this room and help me do something? Or I see you going down. Let's not go that way. Let's go this way. And you know it. You sense it. There's a, some struggle, internal, an internal struggle. You say, I, I should be going this way, not that way. I think God wants me to say something to this person, but I, don't, I have a bunch of fears. I don't want to do it, so I don't. But there's Jonah's in here. There's Jonah's in here that say, don't ask me. And I want you to know that today God is handing to you a second chance. Hey, don't, don't be a Jonah. Don't be Jonah chapter 1. Be Jonah chapter 3. Let me say it another way just from the text. In chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Look at that with me. Arise, go to Jonah, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Verse 3, what's the first word there? But, oh, oh. You, do you hear the excuses right there? This is like cue the teleprompter. I've got my, all my excuses lined up here. But, but, I don't want to love my enemies. But, I, I don't want to give grace and forgive people. I don't want to give up thinking I'm right and in control. I don't want to give up my old habits, but I'm afraid of what other people say about me, but I'm afraid of what I might be. But, but God, your mission isn't part of my mission, but, 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 but. Let's trade in the but for a so. How about that? Chapter 3, verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it in the message I tell you, so... So, so I will do what you say. No more, ah, uh, uh, don't ask me. No more buts. Not everyone here is a Jonah, but there's several. God has said, hey, I, I need you over here. I need you to speak up this weekend at Thanksgiving. I need you to say something at work. I need you to go in this direction and not this direction. And you know it. But let's, let's turn our butts into so's. Now, in the second service, there'll be a lot of middle school boys here. <laughs> and I used to be a middle school boy, so I know what I would say to my parents on the way home. I didn't hear much of the, what the preacher said, but I, he said something about turning my butt. So I'm going to be working on that this week. Let's not make that the thing that we remember. Let, let's turn our butts into so's. So, whatever you say. So, so you're in control. So your way is not my way. So your thoughts aren't my thoughts. So I'm not in control of everything. You are in control of everything. 
one reluctant prophet makes a turn. One brief message. Jonah was called to arise and go, but also to speak. It wasn't just, hey, arise and go, but I I need you to open your mouth. You've got to say something. There's a part of what we're all called to in the Great Commission. The Great Commission in Matthew 28 isn't just for special people, pastors or evangelists. The, it's you, you all go. Go, in all, go into all the world and, and teach, to say something, to preach, to bring people to the Lord, to speak up. And so Jonah is called to, to go and speak. And he delivers a very brief message, verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out. You've got to wonder just what that was like right there, don't you? He's tried to run away. He's been three days and nights in the belly of a great fish. He's been thrown up on a, uh, some kind of land mass. He's walked some distance, of probably a great distance to Nineveh. And you just can feel his heart just, can't you, pounding in his chest as he gets towards Nineveh and all these wicked people and the things that he sees. And somewhere he's got to muster up the courage to say something. And what he says is, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It's a pretty brief message. Again, scholars will debate as to whether this was the only thing Jonah said. He spent 40 days just saying this over and over again, or did he have a broader message? And I think he probably had a broader message. But I think the storyteller, I think the artist wants to compress it to focus our attention on a couple of things. Number one, he wants to highlight the power of God's word. He wants to say it doesn't take much of God's word to change a heart. Yeah, sure, Jonah said some other things, but I I just want to compress it down to this one brief message to help you understand the power of God's word. The storyteller wants to emphasize that the effectiveness of Jonah speaking wasn't tethered to his eloquence. The effectiveness of Jonah's preaching the effectiveness of Jonah saying something, it wasn't tethered to his eloquence. It was tethered to the power of God's word. I don't know if you've heard the story of Charles Spurgeon's conversion. If you don't know Charles Spurgeon, he's called the Prince of Preachers. He lived in the 1800s. He was in a big church, set 5,000 people in London in the 1800s. Huge church. The Prince of Preachers. Every preacher would love to be Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon, when he was 15 15 years old, says this, and listen to this carefully. I sometimes think I might have lived in the darkness and despair if it had not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place of worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a side street and I came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel were there, there were maybe a dozen or 15 people. They were the type who sang loudly but off-key. You know some of those? You sitting next to some of those? The minister was snowed in and didn't come that morning, so a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker, a tailor, or something of that sort, went into the pulpit to preach. Now, it is well that preachers should be instructed, but this man was really stupid. (laughs) So, listen, he was obliged to stick to this text, For the simple reason, he had little else to say. The text was Isaiah 45, 22. Look unto me, 
and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. The man did not even pronounce the words right, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me. This is a 15-year-old boy. The preacher began, my dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look, now look and don't take a great deal of pains. It ain't even lifting a foot or a finger. It's just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can still look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. I, he said, many of ye are looking to yourselves. But it's no, look, no use looking there. You'll never find comfort in yourselves. The text says, look unto me. Look to Jesus. Then the good man followed up this way. Look unto me, I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I'm dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend into heaven. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me, look unto me. And then the preacher fixed his eyes on me. As if he knew me with all his heart. And he said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did. But I had not been accustomed to having remarks made from the pulpit about my personal experience or my personal appearance. However, it was a good blow. Struck me right home. And he continued, and you always will be miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death. But if you obey now... Hear that? Second chance. Another chance is coming to this 15-year-old boy. You will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do. You, man, look to Jesus. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. I saw at once salvation. Oh, I looked. There and then the cloud was gone and darkness rolled away. And at that moment, I saw the sun. And I have could, could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ, the simple faith which looks to Jesus alone. Oh, that somebody had told me this before. It's a simple message delivered by a, a simple man. It's not the eloquence of the preacher. It's the power of of God's word. Look unto me and be saved. Are you looking? If you have and you've trusted in Christ, do you really trust in the power of his words? Or or do you have to have some eloquence? Do you have to have something special in order for everything to work out just right? And so you're talking to a friend and you feel like you should say something about Jesus, but you're like, oh my gosh, if I say something, I mean, I'm never going to get out of this. Um, I mean, I don't, what if he asked me about the problem of pain or something? I don't know. And you give all your excuses and you don't really trust in the power of God's word. I was reading this week about a pastor who was on a plane and he had a captive audience on the plane. The guy next to the window couldn't get away from him. And so one thing led to another. They got into a conversation about Jesus and the guy was a pretty avowed atheist, and every time the, the pastor was trying to come at him at some different angle, the atheist is like, no, I don't believe that, blah, blah, blah. 
And the pastor left the plane sort of like, I mean, I did what I could, but this guy just wasn't, he wasn't biting. And then a few months later, somebody came to his church, and after the church service came up to him and said, hey, I got saved on a plane listening to you explain the gospel. And they're like, I, I don't, the pastor said, I don't think I've ever seen you before. I'm pretty sure I've never talked to you before. Oh, I was in the front row in front of the guy you were talking to. And I was listening the whole time. And I could tell the Lord was speaking to me. See, isn't that powerful? The Word of God is powerful. You're going to have an opportunity between now and maybe Sunday, but certainly through the holidays, to be with a lot of different people. Office party, family party. Maybe if you're a Christian, it's the first time to say, I'm going to trust in God's Word. I've looked to Christ, and now I know He's got the power to change a life, not, not me. The Ninevites, like Spurgeon, heard a simple message from a reluctant prophet or a thin man who was a shoemaker. And God has given us that same word to give to others. The second reason I think the message is compressed because the, the, the artist, the writer, wants us to see something, is this one word in, in the text, overthrown. You see that? Jonah began to go into the city. He began to preach 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's the big word. Okay, 40 days, I'm in Nineveh. What's going to happen? Overthrown. That's the word they hear. And in the Hebrew, that has two distinct meanings that when you would hear it, you would hear both of them at the same time. One means judged. Sodom and Gomorrah were overthrown. They were destroyed. They were wiped out. Uh-oh, so this is a guy, whether I believe him or not, something bad is going to happen. I'm going to be judged and I'm going to be destroyed. He's saying I'm going to be overthrown. Or the word overthrown can be overturned or turned upside down. Deuteronomy 23, 5, same word. The Lord turned. The Lord overturned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. So they would hear, hey, this guy's saying something, and what he's saying, if I believe him, is either I'm going to be judged and destroyed or my whole life is going to flip upside down. Those are the two choices right now. So when Jonah delivered this message, they understood that, and I want you to know the same is true today. God's word doesn't have to be complicated. But as it comes, it's a binary choice. You get judged by that and wiped out. Or your whole life turns over. It turns upside down. Disobey and destruction. Or look to Jesus and have your life turned upside down. Please don't allow you all especially if you're younger, to have lived in a culture where everyone gets a trophy at the end, cloud your judgment here. Everyone does not get a trophy in the end. Do you hear me? Everyone is overturned in one way or the other. And Jonah is calling out like I'm using Jonah to call out to you. It's the same choice for you today. 
Today, you can have your, your life turned over, reversed, upside down. Or if you don't hear that, then one day God will come and it'll seem quicker than you think. And there won't be a second chance. Today is the day. So Jonah, the reluctant prophet, he comes, he gives a simple message. And let's end here. There's two, two great turnings. Verses 8 through 10, you notice the word turn is used four times. Let's look at it together. But let a man or beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn. The king is saying, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hands. In other words, everyone's evil and the violence is near them. It's in their hands. Who knows? God may turn. And relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may, per may not perish. When God saw that they did what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God turned. God relented from the disaster. Two great turnings. First of all, there's the turning of the Ninevites. They hear Jonah's sermon and they turn and turn, and this is a whole sermon, but I don't have time to deliver it now, but I want you to see three ways in which they turn. So in case you're not Jonah, but you're a Ninevite, you're someone who really hasn't followed after God, and you're here today thinking, well, I, I, the preacher's telling me I'm, I'm in danger of judgment. What does it mean to turn? What would it look like for me to turn? Here are three things in the text that I think comprise every turning at some point. First of all, they see themselves correctly, verse 8. They see themselves as evil and violent. It's in their own hands. They are the main problem. Listen carefully. Your main problem isn't your parents. Your main problem isn't the evil culture. Your main problem isn't money. The main problem isn't the way you grew up. The main problem isn't the government. Your main problem is what? You. Paul Phillips' biggest problem, he looks at it every morning in the mirror. Me. I'm the biggest problem. It's close to me. I'm the problem. I'm in danger personally. It's not someone else's fault. And they see this and they turn. And this turning, this is so important, they change. This is a verse you really need to see and underline. Verse 6, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and what would he do? What's the very first thing he did? He got off his throne. Do you hear that? If you want to follow after Jesus, when you turn, the very first step you have to make is down. You're not the king or queen anymore this is so critical this is actually the hardest thing to do if you're me i can say okay i believe hey paul get off your throne oh i love my throne i love being in charge i love being in control i just don't want to give up my throne i'm not the king i am the problem third Verse 9, they respond with humility. Again, I love, I love all this, 6, 8, and 9. Who knows? 
I mean, who knows what God might do? Do you feel, you feel that humility? There's no demandingness here. There's no, well, I turned, and by God, God ought to get me this. See, that's, a lot of people have that somehow buried down. I did my hard part. God, you better do, do your hard part for me. That, that's not turn. I'm telling you, if that's in your heart, that's not turning. That's you taking your throne with you. Portable throne. <laughs> that's not in my text here. <laughs> they see themselves correctly. It's in their hands. It's them. They change. You can see the change. The guy's not in the same place that he was. I wonder if people would say that about you. Maybe you're not where you should be, but you're not where you were. There's been a change. You've gotten off some kind of throne to say, I'm not, I'm not the king, I'm not the queen. And then you respond in humility. Who knows? Let's pray that God would turn towards us. I don't know if you saw this past week a quote from the female superstar soccer player, Megan Rapino, I think is how you say her last name. I always notice her because she's got pink hair. But I think she was on an Olympic team. She's been on all kinds of great teams. She's a great soccer player. And she's, at the end of her career, she had one more game this past week. It was her last professional game. And at the very beginning of the game, she got hurt and got carried off the field. So that's a bummer. It's your last professional game. You've got some fame. You've got some notoriety, and, and you just couldn't even finish the game. You get carried off. She had a press conference afterwards. She's not a religious person. And at the press conference, she said this, I'm not a religious person, but my injury is proof that there is no God. Think about that. You can say anything you want to at this press conference. You've got the press all over you. I'm not religious, but my injury is proof that, that if there was a God, what? He wouldn't allow me to get injured. I don't know what she was thinking, but here's my guess. If there was a God, then God would owe me this last game. God would owe me. You, you've sensed that lack of humility? Let's not be too quick to judge. Anyone here gotten into a situation and thought, you know what, God owed me that. After all I've done, after all I've been through, hmm, God owed me. Oh, that, that spirit is not just in Megan Rapino. That, that could be in my heart. But the, the true turning is God, does, God doesn't owe me. I hope he turns towards me. Who knows? But, I mean, if, if he gives me judgment, then I just deserve judgment. That's, that'd be totally fair. And here's the great news, and I wish I had another sermon to deliver at verse 10. What do they find when they turn? A God who's turned. Oh, this is the gospel. The worst people in the world turn to God, and what do they find? 
a God turning towards them. What did, the, what did the prodigal son find when he was walking home? You remember this? It, wa- it wasn't his dad like this. Okay, son. Got to measure up. Really messed up. I'm going to give you a second chance, but here's the list of things you're going to have to do first. See, some of us have that vision of God. Well, he's giving me a second chance, but he's like this, kind of scowling. Well, we'll see. You start at the low end. Remember what the father did? He runs to his son. He gives him a robe. He gives him a ring. He gives him a great party. You're right back into where you were. This, this is amazing grace. This is exactly what the Ninevites found when they turned. They found a God turning, turning towards them. So let's think about this as we conclude. Any Jonas here? Anyone say, I know I should do that, but don't ask me. Ask yourself. I know you want me to do this. I know you want me to say this. I know you want me to walk in this way, but I want to walk in this way. Today, today's the day God's saying, it's a, here, I'm going to give you a second chance. Don't say but, say, say so. Do you trust in the power of God's word? It's not your eloquence, it's God's word that really changes a mind, changes a heart. And any Ninevites here, all of us at one day were a Ninevite. And we had to say, hey, I hear, I know I'm in trouble, I know I'm the problem of my trouble, and I need to change i got to turn, and i got to do that in humility. Anybody ready to make that turn? After the service, I'll stay up here. It may be helpful if I have somebody to pray for you today because how God has spoken to you. be happy to be that person for us, but would you pray with me now? Lord, um, this simple story has so much power. Not, not because of me saying it and not because of Jonah saying it, because of you. You're at work through your word in a way that we can't even imagine, even today. Would you help all Jonahs and all Ninevites here today to turn? I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing our closing song.